Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13 as we continue our time of worship this morning. And as you turn to Luke chapter 13, I just wanted to uh, remind some of you, tell some of you about a resource we have at, at the Welcome Center. And I'm, this Wednesday, I'm getting together with uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Rich and Pastor Art, Pastor Rich from Bethany Baptist and Pastor Art at Living Hope Community Church to record some sessions of what we call Revive the Drive. And I was thinking about that on my calendar this week and realizing I hadn't really announced to our church or told you much about what Revive the Drive is. Revive the Drive are some CDs that we offer at the Welcome Center that kind of have different little snippets, like 15-minute segments of pastors, Rich Art, and myself talking about uh, different areas of uh, church life, of theology, and just kind of a, a neat little way to, to learn some, some more things about what we believe the Bible teaches about different theological subjects. And so if that sounds like a good resource for you that you want to kind of put in your CD player in the car on your way to work, there's also some uh, on the website some ways to, to download it as an iPod. That might be a, a useful resource for you. Revive the Drive. Again, more information's at the, the Welcome Center. And I, I get approached by a lot of people at Bethany Baptist telling me uh, how they've enjoyed it, and I realize, boy, I really need to... Uh, to mention that to our own church as well. So maybe some of you have already been able to, to use that and found it helpful or not. So hopefully that will be a good resource for you. Well, if you would, uh, we're in Luke chapter 13. Uh, last week we looked at the story of, of Jesus healing on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and we're kind of continuing that story. There's some aftermath of that story, and it's a little bit of a shorter text this morning, but if you please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Remember, Jesus has just healed this woman in verse 17. It says, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced to see all the glorious things that were done by him. And then we come to these verses in verses 18 through 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You may be seated, and may our hearts be encouraged by God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the truth that your kingdom is coming, your kingdom has already in some ways begun and is going to come to full completion someday, and we rejoice as we consider our participation in your kingdom, both, both now and the future. Open our hearts to understand what you would have us know about your kingdom in these verses, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how small things become big things, how an obscure book can become a bestseller, or how a fashion trend can sweep the nation. Gladwell, according to Gladwell, in the mid-1990s, the Wolverine clothing brand was considering doing away with one of its most well-known shoes, the Hush Puppy shoe. The Hush Puppy had come into prominence in 1958, and it had been very popular for a time, but by the mid-1990s, they were only selling about 30,000 pairs of Hush Puppies a year, and so they were considering just 
completely doing away with the brand. Well, two executives that were hush puppy executives uh, found themselves one day talking to a stylist by chance. And the stylist told these executives when she found out who they worked for, she said, you know, I- I've been seeing your shoes several different places. In fact, and she mentioned one famous designer that these guys had never heard of. She says, I saw him wearing a pair of hush puppy shoes. And the executives were a little bit taken aback, but it turns out that the stylist was correct. Uh, suddenly, people were wearing these, these hush puppy shoes everywhere. They, they saw them in clubs, and, and they, they heard about the mom and pop stores that were selling these, these shoes, running out of them, and then secondhand stores where people had gotten rid of their old hush puppies, were, were finding that they couldn't keep these things in stock, and fashion designers were contacting the company to see if they could show these shoes in their their fashion shows. A Hollywood designer put up a 25-foot basset hound on top of his store, you know, the hush puppy mascot, and and suddenly the hush puppies were selling like hush puppies, I don't know, hotcakes. They were were just selling like crazy. They sold 30,000 pairs of the shoes in 1994. 1995, they sold over 400,000 pairs of the shoes, four times that the following year, and even more the following year. What had happened? Well, apparently some, some kids, because the shoes were unpopular, kind of wanted to, to, to wear something that was outside the mainstream. They start wearing these shoes. Their friends see them wearing these shoes. They want them, and it, and just, it just spread. It went viral. Gladwell talks about how something small can suddenly become big, and it doesn't burst out into our consciousness and, and fits. It, it's all of a sudden, this thing, this trend that's been hidden and, and, and kind of secretive and small suddenly is everywhere, and, and you've seen it before in, in different things, right? This morning, we're talking about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is, is small, then large, it, it's hidden, and then it's revealed. Something that we don't see being established is being established nonetheless. And remember last week, as we saw this interaction between Jesus and the synagogue ruler, we saw that the synagogue ruler didn't understand the kingdom of God. Jesus had been teaching the synagogue, and as this woman came into the synagogue that had been disabled for 18 years, unable to to stand up straight, Jesus saw her, said that you're you're free, you're released. And, And as he says that, she's instantly released from this oppressive this disabling spirit that she's had for 18 years, and as she experiences this freedom, she's excited, she's rejoicing, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has been revealed for all to see, a a taste of it at least. And the synagogue ruler, as he sees what's just taken place, he sees an assault on the kingdom of God. Now, in reality, it's just the opposite, but he sees what's just taken place, and the big headline for him we saw last week, the big headline is Sabbath violated, and he fails to see that what Jesus is doing is is part of God's kingdom work. He believes it's an attack on the kingdom of God. In reality, it's the establishment of it, But but he misses it. And Jesus, in response to this attitude of not understanding what the kingdom of God looks like now, tells this parable, these kind of this pair of parables. You see, you and I, hopefully, understand a little bit about the kingdom of God in the future. We understand that in the future, 
people from all different nations and, and tribes and, and tongues are going to be engaged in worship of God and the kingdom of God. And as we engage in, in the worship of God and the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is going to reign. And he's going to reign with perfect justice. And he's going to reign with perfect goodness. And he's going to be the ruler that, that none of us can even imagine in our minds right now. And he's going to, to rule with complete sovereignty. And there's going to be complete unity. And it's going to be this, this marvelous entity this marvelous structure that encompasses all of redeemed humanity. It's going to be beyond what we can even imagine. That's the future. But what does the kingdom of God look like now? What does the kingdom of God look like before it's fully revealed? Jesus tells us these two parables Because sometimes we don't understand the kingdom of God rightly in the here and now. We don't understand what the proclamation of the kingdom of God looks like, and and sometimes we miss it. In fact, this this past week I've been thinking, okay, what are the the practical implications of, of not understanding what the kingdom of God looks like? Here's kind of the central idea that I think Jesus is getting at with these two parables. What he's trying to help us understand is the kingdom of God does not look like in the beginning what it looks like in the end. What the kingdom of God looks like in the end isn't what it looks like in the beginning. Now, why is that an important truth for us to understand? Well, I think sometimes we have this perception of the kingdom of God as being this this big thing, and kingdom of God work are, are big things. So, for example, who's involved in kingdom of God work? Well, it's the pastors, and it's the missionaries, and it's the people that are really, really involved in in kingdom work. And as we think about that being kingdom of God work, we fail to understand each of our individual responsibilities to be involved in kingdom of God work in small ways as well. This past week, I was in Denver, Colorado, and I was talking with some missionaries down there. I went down there to, to talk to World Venture missionaries about how our church can be involved in some of their mission endeavors, and very encouraging time, and I have a couple of illustrations this morning from that time talking to these missionaries. One of the days, and during the lunch, they kind of announced missionaries who were retiring, and one woman who was retiring from the mission field had been a missionary in France for several decades, and she, as she got up at the luncheon and everyone celebrated her, she, she mentioned that she was a little discouraged as she thought about her decades of ministry. She said, you know, I think about the number of people who I've had the opportunity to pray with as they've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and she said the number is is depressingly small. Decades of work and not a very large amount of converts to show for it. She said that's kind of discouraging. Now, she said, at the same time, though, I see what God has done through those small numbers over the years. And I think about the other things that he's, he's done in my life. And, and I see the, the school that we've established and the strengthening of the church here in a, in a community that's very hostile to the gospel. And you see what I'm saying? The kingdom of God was being worked out in very small ways in her ministry. 
And sometimes you and I can fail to understand our responsibility to be involved in kingdom work because we say, well, well kingdom work is, is big stuff. It's, it's Billy Graham big stuff. And, and my life isn't kingdom work. And, and it is, right? The kingdom of God is small, then big. It's hidden, then revealed. I think also sometimes as we think about the kingdom of God and these parables that Jesus tells us to help us understand it, we fail to see the way that the kingdom of God isn't just some sort of isolated event in our lives. The kingdom of God is something that that permeates our lives. The, The gospel message just doesn't come into our life and say, okay, let's change this little aspect of who you are. The kingdom of God is something that that permeates us, and, and it changes every aspect of who we are, and, and slowly, more and more, we become conformed to the likeness of Christ. And as we're conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ, the people around us are conformed more to the likeness of Christ as the kingdom of God is manifested in their lives and in our culture's life, and it goes on and on and on. The kingdom of God is not always what we think it is. And misunderstanding the kingdom of God causes us to not recognize it when we see it and not participate it in the way that we should. And so these parables that Jesus tells us are extremely important for us to understand. Again, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God does not look the same at the end as it does in the beginning. The kingdom of God does not look the same in the beginning as it will in the end. We'll look through these parables and and see how that is true. We're going to look at two things. We're going to talk about how the kingdom of God is small than large from the first parable. Then we're going to talk about how the kingdom of God is hidden and revealed. It's small than large. It's hidden and revealed. Those are the two parables that we're going to look at. Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Luke. We've, some of you weren't here when we began going through the gospel of Luke. We've been doing it for quite a while now. So I want to just show you a, a couple snippets from the gospel of Luke thus far in which Jesus and Luke address the kingdom of God to help us understand a little bit about it. Does that, does that sound good? Let's, let's flip back to Luke chapter 1. That's a rhetorical question. Uh, let's flip back to uh, Luke chapter 1. And at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, we see this theme of the kingdom introduced. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah And he talks about the birth of his son, and he talks about how the birth of his son is going to be used to establish the kingdom of God. This is chapter 1, verse 15. He says that this son is going to be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 15. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, prepared for the establishment of the kingdom. Your son, Zacharias, says the angel, is going to be used to prepare the people spiritually for the establishment of God's kingdom, for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, that would not have been a foreign concept at all to the Jewish first century mindset. Well, of course, the people need to be spiritually prepared for the physical kingdom. We see Gabriel talk to Mary later in that chapter, chapter 1. In verse 32, the angel tells Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We sang about that this morning already, didn't we? There's going to be this kingdom established, and this kingdom is going to have no end. Again, the Jewish person at this time would have no no, uh, problem understanding that. Yeah, that's right in line with what we think about the kingdom of, of God. Then we see John the Baptist's ministry, turn over a chapter 2 to Luke chapter 3, and as John the Baptist engages in his ministry of preparing the people, we see him calling them to repentance. He calls them to to be baptized, and he says, look, uh, you need to bear fruit and keep him with repentance. Don't assume that simply because you're part of the Jewish people that you don't need repentance, and and now you need to engage in repentance. The the crowds are excited. They're, They're Verse 15 says, the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. I mean, this is a fiery guy. He's out there in the wilderness. He's calling them to repentance, and so they're excited. Is this the Messiah? And they are engaged in pursuing repentance. Luke tells us that John acknowledges, no, I'm not the Christ, but he who is mightier than I is coming. This is verse 16 of chapter 3, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with, and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a, this is a uh, very excitable guy, this John the Baptist, as he announces this coming kingdom and the need to repent in order to enter it. Again, Nothing that John is saying thus far would have caused a great deal of confusion for the Jewish mind. Then Jesus enters the scene, right? And Jesus kind of catches everybody off guard. In fact, John the Baptist is a little confused by this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. In Luke chapter 4, the, Jesus is tempted. He's offered the kingdom by Satan, and he's, he rejects that offer, and of course, nothing surprising about that for the Jewish mind. But then you come to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, he goes into his hometown, and he announces his ministry of proclaiming good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and the people are excited about this, and they say, look, the, uh, Jesus says today, this, this is verse 21 of chapter 4, the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone's excited about what he's saying, and then, verse 23, he throws a wrench in it. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath of in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only name in the Syrian. What he's saying is, look, you have this assumption that you're going to participate in this kingdom that I've just talked about here, that, I, that I've, I've come here to minister to you, but don't get your hopes up. And as he says that, as he says, don't assume that you're going to be part of the kingdom, the people are so upset that they try to kill him. This kingdom that John the Baptist talked about, that the angel announced to, uh, to Mary and to Zechariah, there's, there's a disconnect as Jesus begin to, begins talking about what the kingdom actually looks like. You go on to Luke chapter 6, and, and Jesus, first of all, talks about who's going to be happy in the kingdom. And the people who are going to be happy in the kingdom aren't the people you'd assume are going to be happy in the kingdom. 
It's not the rich, it's the poor. It's not the people who are filled now, it's the people who are hungry. It's not the people who are enjoying the, the blessings of society, it's the people who are the outcasts and who are currently ridiculed. Jesus' statements about the kingdom attack the, the Jewish hierarchy, the, this culture. And there's confusion regarding the kingdom. And then he talks about kingdom ethics in Luke chapter 6 as he gives his sermon on the plain. And he talks about the type of ethics that you practice in the kingdom aren't the same types of ethics that you're practicing here. You aren't nice to the people who like you. You're nice to those who hate you. Jesus begins saying some things about the kingdom that people are totally confused by. And as he goes through the rest of his ministry, as we see him talking about who's going to be great in the kingdom and what discipleship in the kingdom looks like, over and over again, we see people going, no, 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 huh? What? This past week, I went down for, for breakfast at the hotel. And no, normally, whenever you go down for breakfast at a hotel, you know, there's some Cheerios or some fruit, and there's some yogurt. There's just different things. There's some things that kind of look like eggs and uh, some things that what one time was sausage. I mean, there's just different opportunities for you to eat different things. Uh, I, I went down, and there was uh, one dish, and I don't know a single item that was in it. I didn't recognize anything. I, I kind of put it, uh, picked it up, and I put it on my plate, and I said, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't bode well. Um, it was yellow, and so I assumed there was eggs in it somewhere, but I, I looked at, Rich was there, I said, Rich, what, what do you think, what elements make this up? It's like a mystery. Now, and so we, I picked through and identified various things. As Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the things that he's saying about the kingdom are, are disconnecting. The elements that make up the kingdom are very confusing for people. And here, the synagogue ruler has just seen Jesus do something that, that, that blew his mind. Like, what in the world is this guy doing? He's violating the Sabbath. This isn't how the kingdom of God is supposed to come about. And so Jesus tells two parables here that help us understand what the kingdom of God looks like in the end isn't what it looks like in the beginning. The way that the kingdom of God begins is not the same way it's going to look at the end. The first thing that we see about the kingdom of God here in these verses, is the kingdom of God is small than large. The kingdom of God is small than large. He says this in verse 18. He said, therefore, because of all the things that have just taken place, what is the kingdom of God like, and, and to what shall I compare it? How, how can I help you understand what the kingdom of God is like? What's, what are some analogies I can use that are going to help you? He said, okay, here's, here's one. Here's a simile that's going to help you understand a, a little bit about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is, is like a mustard seed, and a mustard seed was a very tiny seed. In fact, in the Jewish culture, it was used to, as kind of a, an image to describe something small. The Jews would say a, a, a drop of blood, the size of a mustard seed, to describe a, a small amount of blood. Or they'd say, remember Jesus uses a parable later, he says, faith the size of a mustard seed, a small amount of faith. Even today in the Middle East, there's a saying, faith weighing no more than a mustard seed. And so a mustard seed was a description of something small, like we might say the, the head of a pin or lighter than a feather. It was something very, very tiny. And he says, 
the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it, and it grew and became a tree. And a mustard tree might be eight, ten feet tall, and it, and it grew. And as it grew, here in Jesus' parable, it kind of looks like there's a shocking amount of growth here. It, it becomes a tree. It, it becomes maybe even bigger than normal, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And so this, this tree grows, and it becomes this, this place that birds from all over the place can come, come and, and gather and experience rest. Now, what does that parable mean? Well, a couple things that I think are important to notice about the parable. First of all, we notice that the kingdom begins small, right? The kingdom of God doesn't begin large. The kingdom of God that he's, he's trying to help us understand, the kingdom of God begins tiny. It doesn't begin with the great things. It begins with small things. And that's a, a theme we see throughout Scripture, right? Over and over again, God uses small, insignificant people to establish his kingdom, to do great things. We looked at Hannah a few weeks ago. A person who would have been viewed as a, a small person in her culture does amazing things for God's kingdom. God uses small people to do great things. Another thing we notice here about this parable is that the kingdom gets bigger. Now, this isn't a huge emphasis in the parable, but obviously there's, there's growth, and so it starts small, but there's growth that occurs in the kingdom. We also see that the kingdom, I think Jesus is saying here, is going to be expansive enough, it's going to grow enough for many people to enjoy the kingdom. In fact, I believe that Jesus is kind of alluding to a passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 17, we see a similar image. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, we read this. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I, I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the fields shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green one and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it. And so this image in Ezekiel is that, that God is going to take something small and create this great cedar and, and birds from all over are going to be able to nest in it. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He said, remember, remember God's kingdom begins small and it, and it grows and all are going to be able to participate in the kingdom. People from all different tribes and tongues and nations. The other thing that I think it's important to notice about this parable is that indeed, even though it begins small, the kingdom of God will be a place of triumph. It will be a place of triumph. There are many passages we could go to to talk about the ultimate kingdom that's going to be established and the reign of Jesus. Let me just read one from Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, this is a psalm that Solomon wrote, and he's talking about the reign of the Messiah, and he says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and, and crush the oppressor. 
May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. This is describing ultimately the reign of the Messiah. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. Who is that? That's the Messiah. And when is that? That's the kingdom at the end. That's what's going to take place someday when, when all kings recognize the king of kings, when all nations bow before Jesus. What's the problem? The problem is that hasn't happened yet. The kingdom of God doesn't begin large and enlarge. The kingdom of God is small, then large. So what's What's that matter for us? How in the world is that an an applicable truth? Three thoughts here about how this is an important truth for us to understand. First of all, I think it means this. You and I, you and I need to be willing and humble to do small, quiet things for the kingdom. You and I need to be willing to do small, quiet, humble things for the kingdom. You and I need to be willing to be good givers for the kingdom. You know who recognizes a really faithful giver? God. I don't know who doesn't give to the church. You don't know who gives or doesn't give to the church. Those things are done in quiet. A person involved in in children's ministry is doing quiet, humble things for the kingdom of God. I was the youth pastor at Bethany Baptist Church for eight years or so, and oftentimes I had the opportunity to talk with young people about their testimonies, how they became Christians. I've continued to have a ministry in some of those kids' lives as I've kind of entered the phase where I'm doing marriages for some of those kids who were part of the youth group. And there's something that comes up very frequently as I talk with them about their testimonies, about how they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over again, I I hear this this line. Well, I was in Mr. and Mrs. Kurtz's Sunday school class, and Mrs. Kurtz and I prayed to receive the gospel. Mr. and Mrs. Kurtz were involved in Sunday school ministry for, for decades. I believe... I don't even want to say how, I think it was 30, 40 years of of teaching Sunday school class at Bethany Baptist Church. My kids were in their Sunday school class. And over and over again, as I talk to youth, I hear, prayed with Mr. Kurtz, prayed with Mrs. Kurtz to receive Jesus Christ as, as my Savior. That's small, quiet, faithful ministry done over time, consistent faithfulness, quiet, humble ministry. In fact, Mr. and Mrs. Kurtz would would teach Sunday school class to the children on Sunday morning. Monday morning would wake up and be vacuuming the offices in the church. (laughs) Quiet, humble, faithful service. If you and I are going to rightly understand the kingdom of God, it means you and I must be willing to do the small, quiet, humble things to work to establish and proclaim God's kingdom. 
I was reading an uh, interesting quote from F.B. Meyer, and he was, uh, F.B. Meyer was a pastor that was famous at the turn of the last century, and he was, he was talking to a few close personal friends, and apparently one of them shared this after he passed away. He said, you know, it was easy to pray for the success of G. Campbell Morgan. That was another famous pastor. He said, it was easy for me to pray for his success when he was in America. Uh, F.B. Meyer was in Great Britain. It was easy to pray for him when he was in America, but when he came to England and took a church near to mine, it was something different. That old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy, but I got my heel upon his head, and whether I felt it felt right toward my friend, I determined to act right. My church gave a reception for him, and I, I acknowledged that it was not, if it was not necessary for me to preach Sunday evenings, I would dearly love to go and hear him myself. You and I, if we're going to rightly apply this truth that the kingdom of God is small, then large, we must acknowledge that our peace in the kingdom, our work in the kingdom may be small and not large, and be willing to participate in the small, quiet, humble establishment and proclamation of God's kingdom. A second application here that I think it's important for us to think through as we think about this truth that the kingdom of God is small, then large, is you and I must judge success in ministry by God's standard and, and not our own. You and I must judge success by God's standard and, and not our own. Now, that means not only do we say, well, I'm, I'm excited by my ministry when it's small, it also means I'm not assuming that my ministry is right even when it's large. Does that make sense? It's easy in a church right now where we're experiencing growth and things are going well to say, ah, we're, we're growing, things are getting big, that must mean God's hand is in everything. Not necessarily. God's kingdom is not always large. It begins small. And in a place, in a locale, the kingdom of God is sometimes in the small things. And so growth doesn't equal good ministry all the time. And so you and I must judge success by what God says our ministries should be like, not by worldly standards. A third application here that I think is helpful for us is you and I shouldn't be stuck in a paradigm and, and miss out on, on kingdom work that's being done in creative ways. Again, this last week, I was, uh, the, the group was Skyping with a missionary from Bolivia, and this missionary in Bolivia was talking about how he went down to Bolivia to engage in kingdom ministry, and he said, okay, I'm going to be engaged in sports ministry and evangelism proclamation. He went down there, and this was at the time when the economy crashed, and so he's down in Bolivia. He's going to do sports ministry and evangelism, and suddenly, whoosh, no funds. He goes, boy, i, I got to rethink what we're doing here. I want to keep on doing these sports ministries, but he talked to some business people in the States, and he talked to some business people in Bolivia, and they said, look, we want to kind of do some creative ministries with business and kind of do some for-profit things that are going to help fund your ministry. And so they began doing this, this gospel ministry through business work, and it exploded. One of the business people told them, look, I've always been told that my job is to, to pay for ministry and pray for ministry. Now I, I'm doing ministry. And as they begin to do this, this ministry in the business community, the gospel opportunities for them exploded. Now, if, if they had this paradigm, look, gospel ministry is doing sports camps and vacation Bible schools. That's it. They would have missed the kingdom of God being manifested in some small and exciting ways. But they had an openness to how God's kingdom was going to be proclaimed. And they've seen some amazing fruit 
as a result of being faithful to the gospel there. The kingdom of God is small, then large. Another missionary that was retiring told about how, this last week when I was in Denver with World Venture, told how they had entered the Philippines, or World Venture, had, which is part of the Conservative Baptist Association, they had entered the Philippines in the mid-1950s. Today, there are over 800 CB churches in the Philippines. 800 churches that have been established over that time period. I had no idea that that was taking place. I've talked to missionaries that are part of World Venture from the Philippines for years, and I had no idea that they had established 800 churches in that area. It didn't begin in 1950. It, it didn't start off at 800 in 1950. The kingdom of God in different places and in different ways is being established, not uniformly, not all at once, but in significant ways. The kingdom of God is small, then large. Secondly, secondly, we see the kingdom of God is hidden, then pervasive. It's hidden, then it's pervasive. It starts off in quiet ways, and then it, it permeates and, and, and is pervasive in our lives and the lives of our culture. Verse 20, and he said, to what shall I compare the, the kingdom of God? And he, he's just given us one simile that helps us understand one aspect of the kingdom of God. He says, now, let me help, help me again. Let me, let me help you understand another aspect of the kingdom of God. He says, it's like leaven, this, this fermented yeast. It's like this leaven that a, a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. And so she would have taken some of the old fermented dough and she would have taken this, this large amount of dough and this was enough to feed some 150 people. And she would work it into this dough. And it didn't start off all leaven. It was this slow process in which this, this leaven permeated the entire, entire substance here. It's capturing a, a second element of the kingdom. That it's hidden and permeating nature. Lots of bread, small amount of fermented dough, the entire dough becomes leavened. What does he mean here? What is he saying? I think what he's saying is the development of the kingdom is, is not always on display for all to see. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, doesn't just automatically enter a person's life and, and there's, there's transformation in such a way that everyone notices it all at once. The, the kingdom of God enters a person, it enters a culture, it enters a world in a slow, permeating fashion. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's triumph is assured, but it's not immediate. What are some examples of the, the permeating, pervasive nature of, of the kingdom? Well, I think about Jesus' work with his disciples, right? As you think about Jesus' work with his disciples and, and how he engages with them in, in ministry, if at the end of three years with them, you looked at those men and, and you saw the way that as Jesus is taken into custody, his disciples flee from him, you wouldn't have said, hey, Jesus, good call on those guys. Man, those are winners. You would have said, wow, the, the kingdom of God didn't enter their life hardly at all. You just wasted three years. Man, you should have picked some much better people. But what happens? Following the resurrection, and as we see into the book of Acts, these, these men became martyrs for the faith. 
their devotion and zeal for God and his glory and the gospel proclamation was, was amazing. The kingdom of God permeated their lives. It started off slow, it started off small, but its triumph was eventual. We'll give you another example of, of this. Turn over to the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 11, you see this permeating nature of the kingdom of God. It's slow and eventual triumph. Now, as you're in Romans 11, before Romans 11, obviously you have Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul introduces this idea, this, this problem that he has. He says, I'm, I'm struggling in my heart because Israel hasn't accepted the gospel message. He's, he's troubled by this. Why hasn't Israel accepted the gospel message? And in Romans chapter 9, he affirms God's sovereignty and his, his goodness. And then in Romans chapter 10, he affirms the necessity of proclaiming the gospel to the nation of Israel to the Jew. And then in Romans chapter 11, he says, now here's this interesting aspect of the kingdom of God and how the Gentiles interact with the Jews here. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 11 says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears would not hear down to this very day. He goes on, he talks about how the Gentiles have entered the kingdom of God. They've been these branches that were grafted into God's tree. And he says in verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And then he says this, here's the mystery. Lest you be wise in your own understanding, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the, the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that, may, that he may have mercy on all. And so there's, there's this interesting thing that's happening with the kingdom of God. And right now, as we look at the kingdom of God, we wouldn't understand what was going on apart from God revealing it to us. But there's this, this hidden kingdom of God. And the Gentiles, you and I, who were not Jews by birth, have entered into God's kingdom through the gospel. And our entering into the kingdom is, is part of God's hidden kingdom work that's going to someday bring Israel into his kingdom again. And then he goes on and he concludes uh, chapter 11 with this doxology that, that we love to sing here at Bethany Community Church. And proclaiming the mysteries and the, the greatness of our, of our God, the, the depth of his glory and how impossible it is for us to understand it in and of ourselves. The kingdom of God is, is hidden and he's working in, in, in permeating ways, permeating even hardened Israel so that someday that gospel seed will bear fruit and 
they will enter the kingdom as well. Another example of this, this permeating influence of the gospel, occurs in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking to those who are married, and in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What does this tell us? This tells us that even in an unbelieving home where one of the spouses is an unbeliever, that gospel influence in a home has, has hidden effects. And that gospel influence in your home, even in a situation where some of the children, your, your siblings or your, your parents or your, your spouse, where they're not believers, that hidden aspect of the kingdom of God can yield amazing fruit as it, as it permeates and, and penetrates a home. It's pervasive. It's hidden sometimes, but it's pervasive. Now, on the flip side, on the flip side, we also know that the, the false kingdom, the kingdom of this world can be pervasive, and that's why Jesus warns us about the leaven of the Pharisees and how it can permeate as well. But on the positive side, the kingdom of God is, is hidden, then it becomes pervasive, pervasive. Let me give you a couple applications from this truth, three applications from this, this last truth that the kingdom of God is, is hidden, then pervasive. First application, first application. The gospel should have a permeating impact in our own lives. The gospel should be this pervasive, permeating influence in our own lives. When you and I first hear the gospel message and respond to it in faith, we recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we have a need for God's forgiveness. And we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our sins, recognizing that he died on the cross in our place in order to bring us into relationship with God. The just for the unjust. Christ died as the just for you and I who are unjust. Now, as we accept that gospel message and place our trust in him alone, there should be this permeating influence of the gospel in our lives. We don't just enter into relationship with God and say, well, thank goodness I've got that covered. Now let's go have some fun. Uh, what we say is, look, now I understand the gospel message. I've been reconciled to God. Now we continue to proclaim that good news of God's grace to ourselves through the work of the Holy Spirit, and it has this, this, this life-changing effect. And we're going to look at next week how whenever a person fails to continue to grow in sanctification, there should be cause for concern. But the gospel should have a permeating influence in our lives, and the first thing we see is the gospel should have a permeating influence in just our own individual lives. The second thing we see is that there should be a, a permeating impact of the gospel, not just in our own lives, but in our spheres of influence. In our spheres of influence. One of our missionaries that we support here at Bethany Community Church is a man named Marty Shaw, and he was giving a, a talk at this, uh, at this conference this last week, and he was talking about 
the interesting uh, nature of our focus at church. He says, you know, we spend 1% to 2% of our lives in the church building, and yet most of our time of discipling or focus is, is on that 1% to 2% of time that people are in church. He says, by contrast, a person spends 30% or so of their life at, at work, and we almost never talk about their need to have a permeating gospel influence there in their work. He also noted this. He says, you know, of 40 to not divine intervention, the interventions in the book of Acts, 40 times where these divine interventions took place in the lives of people, he said 39 of them occurred in marketplaces, in the places of work. You and I, as we think about the, the permeating impact of the gospel, should understand, look, the gospel influences not just me, it changes not just me, but, but there should be this effect of the gospel in the people's lives around me, in my, in my sphere, sphere of influence. Thirdly, there should be this, this permeating aspect of the gospel, not just in my own life, not just in the lives of the people around me, but, but in my culture at large. My culture at large. Because I'm a Christ follower, and working to establish the kingdom of God in my own life, I should see the kingdom of God being manifested slowly but surely in my culture as well. This can be very discouraging, right, as we look at our culture. We say, man, the kingdom of God is, is hidden, then hidden when it comes to our culture. Let me tell you a story that one of the missionaries told. His name's Doug Custer, and he's also a missionary that we support, and he's in Austria right now ministering. And he told about a, a Bible study that he led at a church there in Austria. And there were about, you know, five, six men that came to this Bible study. And they began talking about the gospel and about how it impacted their work lives. Three of these men were contractors. They uh, were involved in, in different services there in Austria. And in Austria, uh, corruption is built into the system. They assume that when a contractor quotes a price and reaches an agreement with his customer, that they're both going to work to minimize the amount of taxes they have to pay. Everything's taxed, and so they will agree on a price, but then they'll agree on a price that they're going to tell the government in order to reduce the amount of taxes that they're going to have to pay. And the Austrian government knows they're going to do that, and so they raise the prices of taxes to, to compensate for that. Corruption's built into the system. Well, these guys are having a Bible study, and, and they are talking about the gospel and about being submissive to government, and one of the contractors says, well, what about our business? You know, we, we have to, to, to play this game in order to survive. How do we honor the government and yet, and yet play this game? And Doug said, well, you guys tell me. And they talked about it, and they're getting ready to close the Bible study. He says, no, no, hold on. I want you guys to come to this decision. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's not my livelihood on the, on, the, on the line, but I want you guys to decide, what are you going to do with this reality? what the gospel should be doing in your lives and how you should be submitting to the government and, and yet this need to work in the system that you're in. One of the guys said, I, I think we should be honest. The other guys agreed. And so they said, okay, we're going to start quoting the same price to our customer that we, that we report to the government. So they went back. Two weeks later, came to the Bible study and, and Doug asked how it went. And they said, well, we we told our bookkeepers what, were they going, what we were going to do, and they said, okay, sounds good. I guess we'll be out of business in six months. Six months go by, they're still in business. Two years go by, they're still in business. Now, it's tight. There's not the cushion that there used to be in their work, but they're still in business. 
Four years go by, they're all still in business, and Doug goes to a birthday party. One of the people in his church invited him to a birthday party and said, you're a missionary, why don't you come to this birthday party? I'm going to invite all my neighbors and you can save them. And Doug said, oh, no pressure, right? So he goes to this birthday party, and, and one of the guests who's had a little bit too much to drink comes up to him and finds out that he's a missionary, and he's very hostile toward Christianity. And he said, now, what type of person would go to a Baptist church? And Doug says, well, you know, lots of good people. And kind of backs off, you know, doesn't want to engage this guy. The guy says, no, tell me. Give me some names of some people that go to your church. So Doug starts listing off some guys, and he lists off the three guys that are in his Bible study. The guy said, you're telling me that so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so go to your church. Doug says, yeah. He said, do you know that you just named the only three honest business people in Austria? The guy was a tax collector for the Austrian government. He said, I review the records of, of everyone that pays taxes in this, in this region, and those are the only three men that I've ever seen be honest in their bookkeeping. I need to come to your church. That's the pervasive influence of the gospel. It's hidden, and it's revealed in some neat ways. And yeah, you know what? As you look at our culture, is the kingdom of God being manifested uniformly in our culture? Absolutely not. But is the kingdom of God working? Absolutely it's hidden, and then it's revealed. It's small, then it's large. And each of us, each of us is called by God to understand that, to recognize that, and to participate in the kingdom, to be engaged in kingdom work for the glory of our great King Jesus Christ, who someday, yes, is going to reign perfectly over, over all people, over all tribes, over all nations, but it hasn't happened yet. But unlike the synagogue ruler, we see the work of Jesus Christ being done in our own lives, the lives of others, and we participate with joy in that work. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be engaged in kingdom ministry. We would not fail to notice where it takes place in the lives of others, but would engage in it with excitement. That We would engage in ministry, not for our own glory, but for yours. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.